0: This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro podcast.
1: It is becoming hard to keep track of the natural disasters. The news has been full of things like people kayaking down the main streets of Vermont's capital and others desperately swimming into the ocean to escape wildfires in Maui. These are the images that we see at the height of the disaster, but the aftermath and the recovery is going to go on for a long time. And in that aftermath, people are going to need legal help. They need to connect with problem solvers. They need the help of forceful advocates to deal with housing issues, FEMA applications, insurance claims, and more. As a lawyer, you can fill that need. You can volunteer your time on a hotline or in a community. If you're nervous about whether or not you can do this well, you can get the training that you need from Practicing Law Institute. You get a better sense of what it might actually be like to do this kind of volunteer work. We are re-releasing our episode, Disaster Strikes, lawyers respond. You can hear leaders from the Disaster Legal Aid Network and a volunteer lawyer from Baker Botts talk about the importance of this particular kind of pro bono. So stick with us. Here is Disaster Strikes, Lawyers Respond. August 2017, Hurricane Harvey dumped one trillion gallons of water on the Houston region in the four days that the hurricane moved over the area.
2: The storm basically just parked over the city and just kept dropping water. That was my first experience, going through something like that, just the sheer volume of water that came down in that initial four-day stretch, was just it's kind of mind-blowing. I, I think for a lot of the folks that were affected, it, it was just kind of sensory overload. And it's like, okay, this is where we are now. Like, where do I go from here? And I, I, don't even, I don't even know what that looks like.
1: In September 2017, Puerto Rico experienced two hurricanes in quick succession. And the second one, Hurricane Maria, devastated the entire island. I remember
3: that the morning after the hurricane, I I stepped out at around 11 a.m. to walk outside and everything was completely gray, totally gray. And the trees looked like they were taking out of a winter scene. And we're talking about an island that doesn't have seasons, Puerto Rico. It's hot all year round and the trees are always green. And I tell people, it's like if someone had a remote control and pressed mute on the island, that's, that's what it felt like. And I think those are the types of images that you never forget.
1: So when I see stories of hurricanes, wildfires, tornadoes on the news, I am often struck with an overwhelming sense of powerlessness. I mean, I make donations and I know that helps, but that doesn't feel like I'm doing anything but I don't have construction skills or medical skills. Basically, I'm good at reading, writing, and public speaking. These are not your go-to skills in a disaster response. But what if I do have specialized training that will make a difference? What if people need emergency services and they need pro bono lawyers? And what if being ready to do pro bono No matter when or where in the US the disaster strikes, what if that is the best way for me to stop feeling powerless? Welcome to Pursuing Justice The Pro Bono Files. It's a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, and we are here to tell pro bono stories stories that we hope inspire you to take your own pro bono legal work to the next level. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken. I've worked in civil rights, criminal defense, and civil legal aid. But now I'm a principal at the Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy and a faculty fellow at PLI. And I love getting to talk with volunteer lawyers and nonprofit legal projects about the pro bono work that matters to them. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. I had so many questions about how doing pro bono after a disaster would even work. And PLI connected me with three people who have answers. We met with three experts in disaster relief pro bono. Jeannie Ortiz-Ortiz. I am the Pro Bono and Strategic Initiatives Manager at Pro BonoNet.
3: We're a national nonprofit. We're based in New York City. And I am also a volunteer vice director of the American Bar Association's Disaster Legal Services Program.
1: And with Linda Anderson Stanley of Equal Justice Works.
4: I am the senior manager of The Disaster Resilience Program at Equal Justice Works. I am also the Voluntary Director of the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division Disaster Legal Services Program.
1: And Amanda Bosley of Lone Star Legal Aid.
5: I am the Managing Attorney of the Disaster Relief Unit at Lone Star Legal Aid. And I am also a Content Manager for DisasterLegalAid.org. And I work in Houston, Texas.
1: I'm just going to lead with my first question, which is when there's a disaster, it's all over the news. And I think most people think we got to get people bottled water, we got to get people shelter. But I don't think, even lawyers, I don't think people's initial thought is we got to get those people lawyers. So, why do we need to get people legal services right after they've experienced a disaster?
4: Disaster survivors have many needs and issues in order to recover, and legal issues are really a big one, and that's where the lawyers come in. Lawyers ensure that those government benefits are equitably accessible and help individuals navigate through bureaucratic red tape to get those benefits. They help solve custody issues when a child's forced to evacuate and live with another family member. Uh, They help clear title to properties that have been passed down through many generations without proper paperwork, which is a prerequisite for some housing assistance and many other issues that really only lawyers can address.
1: I guess that raises a question like so much of law practice and so much of pro bono volunteer law practice is local, right? You you practice where you live, you volunteer where you live, which I think then means that you also live in the place that got hit by the disaster. Jeannie, can you talk about what does that look like when lawyers who have lived through the disaster are also trying to contribute and help to other folks in the same community who have gone through the disaster.
3: Sure. And I I can talk a little bit about my experience in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. I would say that, you know, if you're a lawyer and you've been impacted by the disaster and are looking to volunteer, you have an advantage, right? Because in a way, you're also navigating the disaster recovery process. And if you've been affected, you you build more empathy towards people who are recovering and rebuilding. Volunteering doesn't have to be uh, direct legal services or taking on a case. I think I think that's actually a misconception. It can also be reviewing or preparing know your rights materials for the public on a topic you're an expert on, or it can be conducting research on policy or being a mentor to a law student. In terms of My experience with with Hurricane Maria, I actually lost my job as a result of that hurricane. And I remember wanting to help, but my immediate reaction was to help within my community, like attending a community meeting or helping clean up debris on my street. There was this sense of urgency and community uplifting that inspired everyone to do something. And I had just graduated from law school and had taken the bar exam actually one week before the hurricane. So disaster legal aid was new to me. So every time attorneys come to me and ask, you know, I'm not familiar with this, with this matter, with this area of the law, it's, it's something that I can completely understand.
4: I'd like to add a lot of times climate and weather related disasters strike in an isolated geographical area. So if attorneys in one part of the state are personally dealing with flooding or fires, for example, attorneys in other part of the state might not be and then they can offer their assistance.
1: Linda makes a good point about disasters often striking an isolated area. A few years ago, a very unusual tornado landed on one street near me and hit my colleague's house, but had no impact on my neighborhood at all. Amanda had the opposite kind of luck when a second disaster hit her law office as they were responding to Hurricane Harvey.
5: So right after Harvey, our office caught on fire and we lost everything. We didn't have our, you know, we usually have our disaster kits ready to go and we, have, we keep them in our car or wherever, but, um, well, now we keep them in our car since this happened to us. But the building was on fire. We lost all our flyers, our outreach materials. We are back in our old building that is now new, and we were displaced for five years almost, I guess, it's that it's been since Harvey? A long time. It took a long time to, you know, you had to go through what everybody else has to, the insurance process and everything, and rebuild it all. I've never lived through a disaster.
1: And I've never lawyered through one either. So when Amanda mentions the process everyone goes through to recover and rebuild, I really don't know what that involves.
5: So the Red Cross sets up shelters in the beginning, and they're dealing with people's immediate needs, shelter, food, water, etc. And then when FEMA comes to town, they'll transfer it into a disaster recovery center, and other resources become available with the federal funding like Disaster Food Stamps or Disaster Unemployment and the Small Business Administration. So it can be overwhelming to say the least. You go to FEMA to apply for assistance. They send you to the SBA to see if you qualify for a low-interest loan. Depending on the result of that, you're sent back to FEMA. Uh, In some states like Texas, FEMA assistance is bifurcated, so housing assistance is handled by FEMA and other needs assistance is handled by the state. So you'll file your appeal with FEMA for both housing assistance and other needs assistance, but then the Health and Human Services Commission is who you're going to call regarding the decision for your other needs assistance. So it's probably confusing enough to, to let you know that it's helpful to have an attorney to navigate those.
1: Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually overwhelmed by the list you just gave me. It's very overwhelming, yes. Even if the lawyers at Lone Star are experts in these legal areas, they were never going to be able to meet the sudden, overwhelming need all by themselves. And the capacity problem, it got even worse when their offices and all of their materials were engulfed by fire. This is where pro bono lawyers became vital to the hurricane recovery.
5: A firm in town, Baker Botts, actually came to our aid and printed off hundreds, if not thousands, of flyers and brochures for us to take out to the shelters and the disaster recovery centers. Printing
1: materials was only the beginning of Baker Botts' contribution. We talked with attorney Jeremy Walters, who was a litigation associate with Baker Botts when Harvey hit. And he told us about his experience with pro bono in that post-disaster period.
2: I was pretty lucky that my neighborhood, my area, wasn't nearly as impacted or severely affected as some of of the neighborhoods around you know, Houston proper is, is where I was living at the time. And the further south you headed, you know, towards the coast, obviously, it just got worse and worse. I lived at the time in a neighborhood called The Heights, which I now unironically <laughs> understand to mean is, is better equipped to deal with that kind of situation.
1: So, so, you worked at Baker Bots at the time, and I know that Baker Bots really stepped up in response to Hurricane Harvey. Tell us about the initiatives that Baker Bots had to, to help people in Houston.
2: Sure. At Baker Bots, we worked with Lone Star Legal Aid. At the same time, they had a fire in their office and, and they lost a lot of resources and materials, and, and they were kind of put in a tough situation at the same time where they were trying to help people deal with all of their tough situations. And so uh, we, the firm partnered you know, with Lone Star Legal Aid, among others, to to kind of spearhead some of these initiatives. And the first big one that I was involved in was we had the largest, I assume still the largest, single legal line, which is basically a phone bank where people could call in with their questions. Obviously, at that time, it was almost all flood-related questions, whether it was, you know, I've got this flood insurance policy, I don't know how it works, or it's, I've got this kind of damage, who do I call? And so a lot of it is just triaging and kind of directing people to the right place. And so I'm trying to remember back at the time exactly how many attorneys were involved. I think at one point, I want to say somewhere around 75 maybe, we had a large phone bank in basically the largest conference room at the firm at the time. And then we were forwarding because we had so many volunteers, which was a godsend at the time. We were forwarding calls from the call bank out to the individual offices. <laughs> and so if you were already an attorney at Baker Botts, I sat in my office and did it. And then we had volunteers from other firms would come in and we just kind of sit them in somebody's office, roll the calls, calls out as, as needed.
1: So here's what I would have been nervous about. I've never been through a flood before. I don't know the answer to any of these questions. How did you do it?
2: Sure, no, that's fair enough. The whole legal line, I, I use that because that term because that's what they have a program through the Houston Bar Association. people can call in a phone bank it's the same concept except it's not specific to floods it's anything people can call in and ask anything and people ask me that question all the time because i've volunteered quite a bit is you know how do you go in there not knowing what people are going to ask and so the the thing that i always tell people is you you as a lawyer are going to be a hundred times more able to handle these questions on the fly than somebody who's had No legal training, because really what it is, is is not giving somebody the the keys to the castle on this phone call. You're not telling them exactly what they need to do to be successful in court someday. You're issue spotting. And that's what we do. You know, that's what we learn in law school. You're, You're given a problem in law school. You read through it. You identify the issues, the causes of action, whatever it is. You're doing the same thing on the phone. Somebody's calling you. You're listening for those key words. You're listening for those key issues so that you can direct them to the right place, not so that you can solve their problem. And it was, it was the same thing with the disaster relief, right? We're listening to, to figure out, okay, is this a, a damage issue? Is this an insurance issue? What kind of problem is it? And then the organizations we partnered with provided resources. I remember we had a big booklet that we had on our end, as well as several flyers, websites we could direct people to, phone numbers we could hand out. So that really what we're doing is issue spotting and then giving people the resources they need. We had one night that was just a big phone bank. And then I, I believe the, the Houston Bar had another legal line, a disaster relief-oriented one, at their building. And then over the course of the next few weeks, they were fielding calls. And it, it got to the point, obviously, after you you know done it a few times, that you realize you're answering the same questions you know, over <laughs> and over and over again. Um, and so it got a lot easier.
1: We'll come back to Jeremy in a moment, but I want to raise a point many of you may be thinking: if you're not in the place. If you're not licensed in the state, you're not really positioned to help, are you? I'm not going to haul myself and my Illinois law license into a disaster zone to sit in an office at Jeremy's Texas firm and take calls. But when all of the Houston area gets wiped out or an entire island is devastated, Accessing lawyers from somewhere else might be the only way to meet the need.
4: For a personal example, after Cyclone Gita hit the American Samoa in 2018, essentially all of the attorneys on the island were affected and there were only two legal aid attorneys for the entire island. And in that case, the ABA YLD Disaster Legal Services team stood up a remote FEMA appeals clinic where we matched attorneys from the mainland to assist Cyclone Gita survivors on the island with their FEMA appeals. Everything was done completely remotely. And this was all pre-pandemic. So the methods to assist folks remotely have only strengthened over the years. And uh, a lot of states do have the opportunity to assist disaster survivors in their state for folks that live out of state through the Katrina rule.
1: What is the Katrina rule?
4: So... This is a a rule that kind of came up after Hurricane Katrina, which allows for the outside practice of law temporarily during kind of a state of emergency or after a disaster. And I believe about half of our states right now have adapted some form of this rule or another.
5: After working uh, several disasters, I can tell you that we've always had attorneys and staff that are affected. Their homes are flooded, the power's out, they lost food cars are flooded so they have no transportation so this reduces our manpower to staff the shelters and then later the disaster recovery centers so it's important to have a network of volunteer attorneys who can assist us with getting our informational brochures out to shelters and a setup and provide advice and assistance at the disaster recovery centers now obviously some of the volunteer attorneys are also going to be affected so they won't be able to assist maybe immediately after a disaster. And that's another reason that it's best to have a large number of volunteer attorneys.
1: I also recommend having volunteer attorneys like Jeremy Walters. He was already averaging about 200 pro bono hours a year before the disaster. He takes his commitment to pro bono very seriously.
2: It's one of those things, pro bono legal work, only so many people can do it, right? I mean, you have to be licensed. You need to be an attorney. This is one niche area where there really is a very limited subset of people who is able to help and able to provide that service. And I think it's important that we all do.
1: So let's turn back to doing the the legal line Mm -hmm. because it does strike me that Everything is turned upside down. You all are in the middle of this disaster, just like the people who are calling in. Did sort of banding together with other lawyers at your firm to do this hotline, did it give you a sense of of camaraderie, a sense of teamwork and something positive to focus on rather than what you're dealing with with the storm?
2: I remember having conversations with some of my colleagues afterwards and the next morning, for example, I we talked about, man, I, I think I spoke to 30, 35 people on the phone last night or whatever the number was, and it, it, maybe it's because the storm was still so fresh, but I feel like the, the feeling was almost more, is that enough? Are there still people out there who didn't even know about the line? Maybe they wanted to call and they, they didn't even know what was happening. You know, how do we reach those folks? What else can we do? I I, I don't know if it's the, the semi-perfectionism that is common <laughs> among lawyers, but... <laughs> We didn't feel like we were patting ourselves on the back. It was more of a, okay, what's next?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I imagine it must have been, because talking to people when they're calling, essentially an emergency hotline, even if you can issue spot for them fairly easily, they are often so raw. Mm -hmm. And then talking to one after another, after another, like what impact did it have on you to be, frankly, just hearing that many people who were in pain?
2: Honestly, the... The biggest emotion for me is I just felt grateful. I, I think I mentioned earlier, my house was, was very lucky. We didn't have any major damage. I mean, one of, the, one of my colleagues at Bigger Boss at the time, their entire house was destroyed. Basically, their whole neighborhood essentially turned into a mudslide and took out multiple houses. And so, yeah, I think I just mostly felt grateful that I knew my family was safe and I had this opportunity to try to help other people. Uh, and hearing how bad it had gotten for some of them gave me a lot of perspective.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You strike me as a glass half full guy.
2: I try to be. It's easier some days than others.
1: In all of these conversations, FEMA kept coming up. And as often as I heard FEMA, I heard FEMA appeals, something I really know nothing about. I have heard all three of you mention FEMA appeals, which makes it sound like getting what you're entitled to get from FEMA. Why do you need to appeal FEMA? Why don't they just say you're in a disaster? Here's what you need. Go forth and be safe.
4: Well, I will start off by saying that a common misconception is that FEMA will make you whole or bring you back to your pre-disaster state. And that's just not true. FEMA is really meant to be a supplemental program to kind of make your house habitable again based on their standards. So they're going to want you to go through your home insurance first if it's available, the SBA first in some circumstances and any other assistance that you can get kind of first. And then FEMA is going to come in and supplement that. The reason why we see a lot of FEMA appeals and and one of the reasons why attorneys are so important is that these people are in a state of crisis and they are maybe not in the right mindset to be making the best case for themselves. They're just going out there and saying, I filled out this application, I need to get assistance. And so when FEMA comes out and does an inspection, which is the kind of the starting point of getting some of this federal assistance to repair your home there's a lot of uh, restrictions that FEMA has for example they're not going to go up onto somebody's roof so somebody who has roof damage is unlikely to get uh, FEMA assistance the first time around if they're not prepared with all of the photos and the estimates that they need to show FEMA in the first place
5: and with FEMA appeals there are deadlines so we're in a hurry we're uh, trying to get started Started on cases while also maintaining a presence at the disaster recovery centers. So it is super helpful to have all the volunteer attorneys that we can get when a disaster strikes, and it's even better if they're already trained.
2: Most people handled their applications, for example, for disaster relief themselves, or their their insurance applications. You know, we kind of told them generally what it needed to say, but we did again, we didn't have the time or the resources to sit down and, and draft a letter for everybody or or, or do the kinds of things you might do in a one-on-one client relationship. And then the next big kind of wave of actual legal work was appealing denials. And that's where I got back involved on the legal side. FEMA received, I don't know how many applications for, for relief. Um, i sure it was a lot. And for one reason or another, many of the applications got denied. Mm-hmm. Even though, again, you, you would think people just watching a news report from you know Wisconsin could see the damage on the screen and think, okay, they probably need help. But some of the applications still got denied. And so that's where we step back in. And that's one of the cases I worked on appealing the the denial decision to FEMA to go back and say, okay, what is it that FEMA is expecting to see? And how can we get that evidence? This is the place where the legal skills make a huge difference.
1: I mean, FEMA is designed so that people should be able to get assistance on their own. But the reality is not always that easy. Jeremy and his Baker Botts colleague Ashley Garvey, they both knew how to collect evidence and construct a persuasive written argument, so they stepped in to help with FEMA appeals after Harvey. What was the damage to your client's house?
2: My client's house was flooded. It, depending on the room you looked in, you could see so you could see the flood damage on the wall, right? I mean, where, where the water level had risen to, and in some rooms it was only a few inches, and a few of the rooms. Uh, and I think in the garage, it was up over, over a foot. And the bigger issue was not just that the water had come in, but if you recall you know, from the coverage of, of Hurricane Harvey, the storm basically just parked over the city and just yes. kept dropping water. And so it wasn't just that it had flooded, but it was that the water didn't have time to drain. And it was in the house long enough that it caused significant damage, even though if, even if it's only a foot. All of that sheetrock and drywalls ruined, the baseboards, the carpet, the flooring. And the biggest issue for my client was he couldn't get back to his house because of the road closures and the flooding around the city for I think almost a week. And so he couldn't even get in to assess the damage. And then by the time he did get in there, it wasn't really habitable. There was mold starting to form and that was the biggest issue for him as it became a health issue is he couldn't stay in his own house because there was so much mold that had already started to form and he couldn't really afford to bring in a professional, not that there were any available. I mean, assuming a professional was able to get around the city and was, was currently operating, they were all booked up because they'd had so many calls and there was so much work to be done. Mm -hmm. And so he was in a situation where he, he really couldn't stay in his house. And so by the time it got to me, the house had been empty. He'd been staying with family for, for about a month. And at that point, the mold was just out of control. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, the minor health issue had become a major health issue. Mm-hmm. And the house was basically uninhabitable.
1: You're, you're telling me that there was like a foot of water in the house. Obviously, the whole city was devastated. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea? I know you can't speak for them why FEMA denied his application.
2: They basically said that it was insufficient evidence. They, they weren't saying the house wasn't damaged. They weren't saying there wasn't mold, but basically that they just needed more proof. And so I looked at the proof that that my client had submitted before I got involved and he went and did what you would expect most people to do. He took a bunch of pictures of of the house after the fact, mm-hmm. what it looked like. And it was obvious that there'd been some damage. But without having a you know a before picture or any real frame of reference, I, I can kind of understand why FEMA might have thought, okay, he can handle this one on his own. Especially oh. if you compare it to, I think I mentioned earlier, some houses either got swept away in you know, there's a mudslide or were damaged so significantly that they were completely unlivable just from the the fact that it might collapse on you. But looking at the pictures my my client submitted, you could see some of the mold and you could obviously see the water damage on the wall, but it, he didn't tear open a wall to see what was growing behind there, right? Oh. And so instead, you're seeing these little black specks or spots on the wall, or you're seeing what, what might be a little bit of growth along the baseboard, but you, you can't really get a feel for it unless you're actually looking at it or the pictures really high quality. And, and again, I mean, this is someone who really needed help. Yeah. So, so what did you do? So first thing we did is we went in and we got some better pictures. And every, between the, the time that he took his pictures and the time the appeal was denied was a few weeks. And so the the mold gotten worse and was actually easier to photograph at that point. We pulled up some sections of carpet. Mm-hmm. To take pictures under there and show where it had grown did not did not knock down a wall, but called in someone who does mold remediation and mm-hmm. removal mm-hmm. and got an estimate. And I think that was probably the most important piece of evidence that the client didn't have the first time mm-hmm. was somebody who does this for a living coming in and saying, "Yes, there's a problem, and here's what it would cost." Yeah. And the the second part's really important because FEMA, at the end of the day, without ever visiting the home, mm-hmm. is going to have to put a dollar value on how much relief each person who applies needs to get back on their feet.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we
2: brought in a professional, got an actual estimate, and sent that in. Mm-hmm. And actually FEMA ended up giving us almost exactly what the estimate was. So oh, I, that's, that's, why I, that's why I think that was probably the most important piece of evidence that the client didn't originally have.
1: So you you got photos, you pulled up some carpet so that you could see uh, what was going on under there. You got an expert. Anything else that you had to do?
2: So not necessarily with the with the evidence but i think the the important thing about us getting involved was there are constantly running deadlines for this stuff right and and that's something that you know as a litigation attorney i'm used to right <laughs> lawsuit gets filed deadlines start to run so it's the same thing here there was a deadline for the initial application and there's deadlines for the appeal so we have 10 days to submit xyz and another 15 days for them to respond and so and it's that- fast it was I was actually I was pretty surprised how quick it moved I think for a lot of the folks that were affected it was just kind of sensory overload okay this is where we are now like where do I go from here and i i don't even I don't even know what that looks like
1: okay so you you get the photos, you get the estimate you write the cover letter on the Baker botts letterhead <laughs> and what happened?
2: So it I do remember it actually moved pretty quick at that point. We so we submitted and I think it was I think we had a 10-day deadline and, and FEMA had then I think two weeks or fifteen days to respond. And I expected there might be some back and forth, but the first response we got was positive. They said that they were gonna overturn the denial.
1: With the help of Jeremy and Ashley, the client got everything he asked for from FEMA. He got what he needed to hire the expert to get the mold out of the house and to go on with the recovery process. And he was able to move back into his home. So the experts all tell us that we can't know when a disaster will strike, but we can prepare for what we will do when it does. Just like every family can have an emergency kit and a plan for how to find each other after a crisis, lawyers can take steps Steps to be ready to give pro bono legal expertise when it is suddenly needed. But what does disaster pro bono preparedness actually entail? I asked our experts. When you talked about what people can do from a distance is develop know-your-rights materials. But most lawyers don't know... What is possible? What the rules are? What the laws are for disaster relief? You all are experts in it. But the truth is, I was a legal aid lawyer forever. I actually didn't know there were specialized disaster food stamps. I mean, I'm mortified that I didn't know that. But I didn't. So <laughs> I would be scared today if there was a disaster, and I was like, I want to help, but I have, I don't know anybody's rights. How do I even? How do I even begin to pick up a shift at the clinic? Do you guys have thoughts about? That pretty rational fear of lawyers that they don't know enough to do any good.
3: Yeah, I can speak to that. I mean, I think that the best way to to think about it is you already have the skills, right? So it's the application of those skills in com- in combination with materials that are out there specifically for for people who are new to this. And I think this is a great question because it comes up a lot, especially after a major disaster has impacted a community. And I'll say that there are so many benefits to preparing in advance of a disaster. Part of that includes getting familiarized with, with the issues. But the main issue, I think, will still be obtaining assistance, right? Federal assistance from programs like FEMA or the SBA, and those are all resources and, and training materials that are, that are out there. And I think a good way to prepare and, and review that is by identifying the, the resources that are published and also by joining groups, listservs, or committees in your areas that lead these disaster legal help efforts after a disaster. And one of the things that, that ProbonoNet did with Equal Justice Works and, and Loan Legal Aid was the PLI training on current and emerging disaster response issues, which I think is an excellent resource for people who are new, right, to, to disaster legal aid. And we cover everything from the life cycle of disaster legal issues, how to ag- advocate for survivors, any changes in federal regulations that have taken
4: place in recent months.
1: Linda, you look like you had a thought.
4: Just to add on to what Jeannie said, which I completely agree with, as disaster lawyers, preparedness is something we really advocate for in our communities to help build resiliency and make it for an easier recovery. And the same can be said for preparing to assist disaster survivors with their le- legal issues. So you can prepare yourself or your attorneys, your pro bono attorneys now, the recovery phase will just go that much smoother. So you can definitely start with our six-hour PLI program that we all just put together. And Equal Justice Works and the ABA YLD Disaster Legal Services Program also just released our National Disaster Attorney Guidebook last month, which serves as an overview of disaster assistance and resources that are available after a disaster and best practices for attorneys trying to assist survivors. And the DLS team can also assist with follow-up trainings and provide additional resources. One of the things that
3: ProbonoNet did after the 2017 major disasters was build on our partnership with Loan Legal Aid to create what Amanda recently mentioned, the National Disaster Legal Aid Advocacy Center, which is an online resource to facilitate connections between advocates working in disaster legal aid and also to give additional visibility to what's going on in the disaster legal aid field.
1: But I would be, I'm being honest, I would be nervous. And, and I hear this a lot in pro bono um, projects where people will say, well, I don't want to get trained on a new area of law and then not use it soon. So what do you all recommend to people in terms of should they take the training long before any disaster happens in their communities. How do you suggest attorneys who are who want to be available to do pro bono handle their own preparedness?
5: I think that having attending a training is a good start to have a good foundation. And then you sort of have that background. And then when a disaster does occur, you could rewatch it, freshen up. But I feel like it's great to have the foundation Already built before the disaster strikes,
3: and one of the th- one of the things that I've seen recently in in places like California or Puerto Rico is that the organizations leading these disaster response efforts will have trainings that are required for pro bono attorneys to assist disaster survivors. So it'll be like five courses, and you'll have to sit through them and obtain a certification in order to officially part of the volunteer list to be ready to deploy once the disaster hits. And I think that's a good approach to building capacity in advance of disasters and then having this group of volunteers ready to to be able to respond quickly and timely.
1: If someone's listening to this podcast and they're like, "Okay, I want to help, I want to and I recognize that there might be needs right now somewhere that where the disaster is not in the headlines anymore, like is there some kind of a centralized place that people could go to look for disaster-related volunteer opportunities?
3: Yeah, so th- through the Advocacy Center, we, we post information about opportunities. And also at Pro BonoNet, we also have a national opportunities guide, which allows advocates to filter
4: by, by topic area, including disasters. The ABA YLD Disaster Legal Services Program does have a national disaster relief pro bono portal. So for every disaster that we're involved in, and an opportunity for pro bono arises, we go ahead and put that on the site. And so any attorney who's interested can look at the site and filter by issue area or by state or by need, and see if there's something that might be of interest to them. And they pretty much just have to type in their name and email address, and then we can pair them up with the opportunity.
1: And you mentioned the course that you're that the three of you are leading with PLI on uh, disaster response legal services. When is that course? When should people be looking?
3: So we we pre-recorded that course uh, with the Practicing Law Institute in November of last year, and it'll be available until November of this year. So we encourage everyone to review it. Uh, if you know it, it's divided by segments, so it's a good way to review the segments by by topic if you don't have the time to sit through it all day. But my invitation is for attorneys to review it in advance of. of Or at the beginning of Atlantic hurricane season, which starts on June 1st. So it's a good time to prepare and review that because typically we'll see disaster activity increase by August and September.
4: It also counts for CLE credit. So if
1: I'm doom scrolling at 11 o'clock at night because something has happened and there's people I care about in the area or I just care that humans are impacted, I can take action by going to PLI and signing up to take the course, hopefully not at midnight, maybe the next day. But, it, but I think what you're telling me is that you guys keep content there that is up-to-date and helpful year-round, and I don't have to wait for a live event.
4: I'll just say it's not always easy. It might be a new area to you. You might be strapped for time. It can take an emotional toll working with folks in the midst of crisis. But really, at the end of the day, providing just one disaster survivor with advice, saving one home, providing one life-saving resource is extremely rewarding and really means the world to that one person.
1: Jeremy also has some pretty useful advice on how to be prepared to do pro bono after a disaster.
2: When we're focusing right now on disaster relief, I mentioned making pro bono work a habit. And I think that's kind of the best thing that attorneys out there can do right now is you don't wait until there's a disaster and then think, okay, how can I help out? You should help out, but if you haven't designed your practice in such a way that you have the capacity to do that, it's gonna be difficult. And so I, I mentioned I was doing a couple hundred hours of pro bono a year while at Baker Botts. Well, that made it such that I could fit this unexpected disaster relief you know, into my schedule. So I think it's important on the front end now, while there is no disaster, no emergency, but try to structure your practice in a way that you are making pro bono work a regular part of it.
0: Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit PLI.edu slash probono.